Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently with your host, Matthew O'Connell, featuring interviews, long-form conversations, and think pieces exploring theory and practice within a 21st century practicing life. Visit imperfectbuddha.com for more, or keep listening to new episodes at the New Books Network. Today, the podcast has its centenary bash. You're listening, therefore you are invited. Now, the Queen didn't make it to 100, but we did. So feel free to wave a flag or two and drink a cuppa in our honour. Tea at five, well, tea whenever you want. For several years now, we have been tackling tricky subjects found in the world of Western Buddhism and contemporary spirituality more broadly, meeting with academics and philosophers to challenge anti-intellectualism and reduce our own ignorance regarding Buddhism in all of its complexities in the process, getting practical with interesting teachers and with think pieces and discussions of the practicing life and attempting to think beyond ideological capture, spiritual materialism and blinkered views of spirituality and religion. Other podcasts have come and gone. Many more are sprouting up as I speak. We have lost listeners and gained new listeners. The fact is, this podcast is not for everyone. But if it is your cup of tea, then we appreciate you tuning in, listening in, and journeying along with us through the complex world of Western Buddhism and the challenges of the practicing life. In this episode, I meet with regular guest Glenn Wallace, creator of non-Buddhism, academic of Buddhist studies, musician and writer. We look at what Nietzsche would say about wokeism. Yeah. Journey into non-Buddhist mysticism and ponder on what sort of Buddha the future Buddha Maitreya might be. This is the first of 2023. Enjoy. Hello and welcome back to the Imperfect Buddha podcast. And yes, today is episode number 100. And I guess I feel quite conflicted about what that might mean. Um, It kind of means something and it kind of doesn't. The fact is the podcast is a slow brew. Uh, Perhaps it's the podcast equivalent of the Italian slow food movement, because the podcast has been going for actually seven years. And some people get to 100 episodes in the first six months, but that's not the case with this one. Now, I had tried to get Stuart back on, and some of you long-time listeners will remember Stuart Baldwin. Hello, Stuart, if you're listening. But it was, alas, uh, a no-go. So I, <laughs> I took my second-place guest, which is Mr. Glenn Wallace. Luckily, he expelled a hearty yes, and I'm going to say it this way, from his Nietzschean lungs. And here we are today. Now, Glenn, the truth is I'm not a particularly sentimental person. If I were to define myself as being past, present or future orientated, I'd probably be somewhere in between the future and the present. So looking forward is perhaps the way I'd like to look. But uh, 
I hear you may have a question or two that you want to throw at me at the beginning. I do. Great to talk to you again, Matthew. I think it's a big deal that you are now doing your 100th episode. I think Imperfect Buddha podcast is a very important podcast, a very important um, space to have conversations that are both reflecting and inciting certain very important changes that are happen happening with Buddhism in the Western world. That's our interest, really. And I could say why I think Imperfect Buddha podcast is so important. I could talk about that for a long time, but just very briefly, I think it does something that Buddhism itself purports to do. And I think the goods are still deeply there in Buddhism to do, and that is to be a conversation, thinking, dialogue, exploration, become more intelligent, more intelligent, not in abstract sense, but more intelligent in relation to reality, more intelligent in relation to others, in relation to the world in which we live. And I think you do that. And I don't think you can take that for granted in Buddhist communities anymore, even though at the very root of it all is Bud, intelligence. So I'm very happy to be here today. And I do have some questions. Mm. Let's start with the question, what would you say inspired you in the very beginning? What inspired or incited, of course, as the case may be, your interest in starting the podcast, which I I know must be an incredible amount of work. So what was your initial inspiration <laughs> or incitement? Can you recall? Yeah, no, I can recall. Uh, but I'll also say it, it does feel strange to be on the other side of things. Well, this is a great feast and the tables are round. Yes. yes. <laughs> There's no head. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. You're right. You know, but of course, uh, being the questioner is a certain kind of uh, spatial strategy, right? I get to be over here and you're there. But that's fine. Let me give it a go. So look, um, the key word, I, I think, is disappointment. Yeah, I mean, I was quite happy when uh, the Buddhist Geeks podcast emerged along with a few others. And uh, some of the earlier conversations on that podcast I found uh, really stimulating and interesting. Uh, and after a while, though, it kind of headed off into a couple of directions, one of them being a sort of fetishization of technology. And I was disinterested, to say the least. And at that point, I realized that Reflecting on what I found interesting about that podcast, uh, they were always the more intelligent conversations with uh, guests who usually had some kind of link to the academic world or philosophy and were therefore capable of offering some kind of critique or let's say more nuanced or articulate analysis of, of Buddhism rather than just the old sycophantic stuff that you and I are both very, very familiar with. So at some point, um, being a man of action... I thought, well, if no one else is going to start having those kinds of conversations again in my own hubris, I'll, I'll give it a go. And that's, uh, that's kind of where it started. That's the first stream. The second one was I proposed to Stuart that we do it in a very down-to-earth and relatively informal manner as uh, um, kind of reproducing the sorts of conversations that he and I used to have in the pub. So there was the critique, but there was also a pint of beer and a laugh and a bit of uh, self-deprecating humor. And uh, kind of, well, sorry, guys, to set, but a, a little bit of anti-Americanism, as the Brits are well known for, where we kind of can't help but laugh at the sort of self-importance of the American collective psyche. So putting all that together, that's kind of how it started. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's very interesting. Sometimes I tell my students when they get stuck 
I say, you know, imagine we're just in a pub having this conversation. You know, mm. how, how might it go? And it helps to loosen them up a, a bit. I really like that. I think it's very interesting that it begins in, in disappointment. Simon Critchley says philosophy likes to think that it begins in love or wonder, he says, but really it, it begins in disappointment. And that's why it has this permanent sort of critical edge to it. You know that I often say that Buddhism, the argument can be made that the textual goods are there to say that Buddhism begins in disillusionment. Mm. That's actually said in various places in the Pali Canon. You brought up uh, Stuart Baldwin a few times. I recall the first few episodes, I thought your relationship with Stuart, your banter was so great. I found him so witty and interesting and intelligent. And I was disappointed when he kind of disappeared from the podcast. I'm sure there are good reasons for all that, but I just want to give a, a shout out to Stuart about that. Another question that comes up is, is whether... Uh, you actually read all the books. Like you had this guest on recently, I uh, was talking about his book on Nietzsche and the Buddha or Nietzsche and other Buddhas. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned like several books that he wrote and you gave the impression throughout the podcast, you actually had read all the books. Is that the case? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's have listeners uh, carry out a Twitter poll on that one. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and that will decide whether I read the next book or not, right? <laughs> Yeah, first of all, uh, yes, Stuart, if you're listening, we miss you. I would love for Stuart to come back, but it's it's just not possible. He's got his own uh, demons to deal with, and there they are. So our friendship continues, and, you know, he continues to be a, a brother to me of sorts. So there it is. But I, I miss him too, and I miss the banter because, you know, Glenn, not, not everybody's capable of it, let's be honest. Mm. Uh, a sense of humor is something else that we can't take for granted, unfortunately. And plus, I think the Brits, uh, you know, I, I like the British sense of humour, especially when it's without that kind of uh, excess of self-deprecating intertwined with cynicism that can mark the, the more impoverished form of it. So, yeah. Anyway, who knows? Yeah. Maybe one day Stuart will come back to life and we'll get him back on the podcast. Um, in terms of books, yeah. So, look, um, uh, yeah, I'm ridiculously busy, which I don't want to be, but I read some of the books, and then I read parts of some of the other books, and then sometimes I read about those books, <laughs> or I have conversations with people who've read them, and based on those conversations, I'll dip in and out of those books and then realize, you know, I want to have a conversation with the person. In terms of Jason M. Worth's book, yeah, I read the whole thing, but I read it backwards, and it took me three years to actually finally read the whole thing, because I found it really... I found, it, I found his style of writing, his prose, quite awkward. And so each time I tried to get going with it, I just, I switched off. I, I don't know, I, I don't know how you read, but I, I kind of read um, as a combination of, of feeling and thought, which is that I need to feel my way into books as I need to think my way into them. So if there's not some kind of pull, let's say, some kind of pull through feeling, I tend to just switch off, which is to say I don't like disembodied uh, intellectualism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, once I decided just to pick out the bit that I found most attractive, I, I read the whole thing. So yeah, in that case, yeah. yeah. In other cases, yes, but I might have read the book several years ago, and it's just sat there waiting for a bit more attention. Yeah, you also get to a point where you've read and thought so much, had so many conversations that it doesn't take much to get a sense of what's going on in a, in a text, and that can be enough for 
a good conversation with the author, I think. Um, mm. I have very bizarre reading practices. I have a pile of books and I'm like you, like I don't read them from beginning to end. I, I jump around in them and at some point I'll start reading in a book. I'll be like, wait a minute, I've read this already. And then I find, okay, there's no spot I haven't read in it yet. I'm done with this book. Mm. Uh, and it's v- very bizarre reading practices. You've mentioned slowness a few times. And I just want to say, I think we might talk about Nietzsche a little bit later, but slowness is, isn't very important for our day our, and age, our time. So I'm glad to hear about about your relationship to slowness. I do have just a couple more questions, if I can, if you don't mind. Yeah, although I would say one more one more thing about reading. Yeah, and I haven't necessarily thought about this a huge amount, but it, it seems it seems transparent to me that text is a living thing when you read it, and there is a form of intimacy with it. And just like there'd be intimacy with a a pet or a partner or painting you might look at your gaze or your way of relating to it has to come from somewhere almost authentic right a kind of resonance within you and that determines to some degree how much you will engage (laughs) intimately with that text or not and sometimes a fleeting glance is quite enough and that's a relationship in and of itself right so yeah I agree I mean sometimes a text the book just doesn't have whatever it is the charm or the personality that you need to stay engaged. Um, another question about the podcast. Can you think of any that have really, really stood out to you? Oh, God. Um, that, that really seem to be important or significant or something. Yeah. Yeah, that's difficult, isn't it? Because we change and mm-hmm. today is today and last year and is last year, which is trite to say, but you, you know what I mean? Life's, life's so intense that within a given time, uh, something was obviously clearly important. I don't know. I mean, the early phase of the podcast was almost like um, a cathartic experience. So some of the episodes are about Stuart and I kind of getting things off our chest without being bitter or angry. (laughs) You know, I would say those episodes were important for a second reason too, which were that both of us tried to, to not get caught up in the reactive position right, of being in opposition to. So it was a kind of early, um, let's say, an early attempt to operating this kind of non-position, right, of finding the right relationship to something so you can actually view yourself and the subject critically or in a meaningful manner. So and I, I felt that that was key in what came later, so critiquing Buddhism and talking about the idea that the characteristics of cults um, can actually be found in all groups to some degree, right? Just as we can find this idea of ideological entrapment or exploration in almost all contexts and groups. So that that's one thing. I guess there are two lines that run through the podcast. One is more philosophical. So that was part of, certainly for me personally, um, finding intellectual tools to actually articulate more fully what I was picking up on intuitively. So something like Adrian Ivakiv. Mm was really helpful in that because he bridges that gap between philosophy, ecology, Buddhism, enlightenment culture in a way that's quite humanistic. Also, some of the episodes with Daniel Ingram were quite cool from that perspective because he was willing to play the game, you know, of talking about your work and other things. Uh, (laughs) My episodes with you were, I think, really important. Um, I, I would say one more thing, which is pleasure. I got a huge amount of pleasure from talking to some people. And one of them, Donald S. Lopez, yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. 
Uh, I read so many of his books uh, that by the time he agreed to come on, it was it was really mm-hmm. really rewarding for me. He was such a nice bloke and intelligent and down to earth. And um, yeah, yeah, I love his work, and I, I agree. He's, he's really down to earth. I think it's interesting you mentioned catharsis. I think that's related to the idea of disappointment, and I think that mm-hmm. that's something that your podcast brings to many listeners as well. A kind of catharsis. Of course, catharsis is related to tragedy, and maybe there's a certain tragedy or drama, at least, in realizing that your religion, your philosophy, your way of life, your practice, whatever, may not be quite what you had hoped it would be. We'll just mm-hmm. put it that way. Mm-hmm. This is a question uh, I think is very important, actually. It's something I think about constantly, and I've been thinking about it a whole lot lately. That is, how has Buddhism uh, in the West, how has, the, has the, the terrain of Buddhism in the West changed in the meantime? When did you begin? 2016, maybe? I think I checked this morning. I think it's 2015, yeah. going to eight years. Um, maybe I should just you know, preface that question yeah. by saying I believe that the trend has changed tremendously since at least since 2013 when I started the blog uh, Speculative Non-Buddhism. And just I'll just mention one way that I think, one significant way that I think it has changed, and that is the before, there's before and after. Before were kind of the end times of when serious thinkers were taking Buddhism as an important interlocutor. Philosophers, people think it in various various fields of the humanities, even perhaps uh, sciences, if we go back to the early, mid-20th century, were very curious about certain Buddhist views of the world, of consciousness, and of phenomena, and so forth. And I think that what has shifted in recent years is that these kinds of serious thinkers are no longer having conversations with Buddhism, as far as I can tell. And I'm in the world of these thinkers. I mean, I, I know them. I read their books. I talk to them. That's one change I myself has perce- I myself have perceived. How about you? Hmm. Do you think that's true, for one thing? And do can mm-hmm. you see anything else? Um, I think my perspective is going to be different from your own just because of my, my, my geographical context. Hmm. And plus, my increasing disinterest with American culture is is not helping either. <laughs> we share that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. For listeners that don't know or don't remember, I live in, in Italy, and I live in the northeast on the border with uh, Slovenia, Croatia, and Austria. So, you know, I, I identify as European, Glenn. Mm-hmm. A good European. <laughs> yes, absolutely, as a pro-European. There's just not a lot of Buddhism around here. Mm. That said, um, I know I'm kind of avoiding the question slightly, but I'll give you a quick anecdote. I went on a retreat this year. Perhaps there's a positive shift taking place even across Europe, if this uh, experience I had is anything to go by. So it was within within the the Mahasi Sayadaw tradition. Mm. So not necessarily a practice that I, I do these days, but I thought, why not? They seemed like at least they were pretty serious in what they were doing in a positive sense. Yep. So I went on the retreat and the, the guy that was running it was an Italian and he had a background in philosophy, which was the other thing that convinced me to go. Um, when he had his evening Dharma talks, he ended up basically talking about Wittgenstein and Simone Veil <laughs> <laughs> and a bit of Heidegger in there too. He was still a Catholic in many ways whilst he was a teacher of this Mahasi Sayadaw style of meditation practice. It was a 10-day retreat. He spoke very good English, and so whenever we had our 
our interviews, we ended up chatting in English about philosophy for for an hour or two, which we shouldn't have done, but that's how it went. So I was kind of surprised, obviously, uh, heartened. I can't say much more than that, apart from the fact that if this person is anything to go by, perhaps at least some people engaging with Buddhism and even quite traditional forms of Buddhism or Buddhist modernism are actually thinking beyond Buddhism in ways which are um, intelligent, thoughtful, <clears throat> careful, and willing to critique Buddhism all the while, you know, teaching it and um, having honest conversations about it. In terms of America looking in from the outside, uh, I find a lot of it really unattractive. Um, I don't think the the shift in many Dharma centers towards the kind of the new values of the new left or, or wokeism, as some people might call it, I don't know how authentic it is. It just seems like a kind of another form of reactionary survivalism. So I don't know how meaningful that is in any way, either to those groups or the people that they're supposedly opening up to. Um, uh, David Chapman once said that Buddhism was in forever decline in the West. Maybe he's right. Uh, I certainly don't see many people engaging with it in highly intelligent, critical ways. I wonder if the the non-Buddhism project is one of the last to do that. Uh-oh. Who knows? Well, you're you're going to continue to do it, and this is the last question. I kind of formulated it in a past-oriented way, but I think I'll ask it in a future-oriented mm. way. What do you do? You plan to do anything different going forward with the podcast? Yeah, that's the only question that I anticipated because I was thinking about it for myself, actually. Yeah, I guess my relationship with the podcast is a little bit like the relationship I have with books. You know, it's it's an intimate relationship, and um, I try to follow where the pool comes or where the attraction lies. I try to keep it creative and interesting, and that for me always means that if I get too comfortable or if I get into a habit, I'm going to start feeling bored. I feel like something's brewing. I know that's a little bit spiritual or mystical or something, it's a beer metaphor. How right. <laughs> well, beer is kind of a religious substance, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Let me tie this into the last question, because as you rightly said, there's not necessarily a whole new generation of critical thinkers engaging with Buddhism seriously, and they would be my uh, guest mm-hmm. pool, right? Those are the yeah. people I'd be going to. So I'm being patient. Um, I'm trying to look at to what degree I can actually have more conversations about like practice and the the impact that has on the person and in their position and role in wider society. So I'm trying to tie together a more, let's say, holistic view of what a practitioner might be in 2023 or 2024. Um, I guess I'm hopeful that more people capable of that are emerging and are going to emerge and already exist. And if I'm patient and curious, I'll probably find more of them. And those are the sorts of people I'd like to get on the podcast. I'm going to continue to do um, some interviews which are promoted because of book connections. And I may continue to do a few think pieces. Yeah, that's more or less where I'm going. Yeah, I think the think pieces are excellent. Oh, thanks. Truly excellent. I often think it would be nice to have them in um, written form as well, because mm. they're, they're dense often. I do encourage you to continue those. So congratulations, Matthew, and good luck. Thank you. Thank you. Great. So shall we uh, pivot the conversation to talking about a man called Nietzsche? Sure. Uh, Great. When we last communicated, you told me about a book that you've been putting together uh, on Friedrich Nietzsche. 
and you're tying it into a a question really right which is what would what would nietzsche say about today's climate of uh woke culture a, a term that we'll probably have to unpack at some point otherwise we'll end up being reactionary subjects right off the get go the title of the book is kind of an affirmation isn't it which resonates with with nietzsche in himself which is uh what is it nietzsche now yes so how's it going with that? Because you sent me the first 119 pages. I guess you've written a bit more since then. Yeah, it's getting close to 300 pages. I'm only on the second chapter. So it's going to be a long book if they let Ooh. me publish it like this. There's a lot to say in Nietzsche's complex and he writes in a very symphonic way. So it's, it's a tricky book. Mm. So it's called Nietzsche Now and has a subtitle, What Can Immoralists Teach Us? It came out of a conversation with a publisher I would say, yeah, I'm like I'm going back to Nietzsche. You know, I, I wrote my senior thesis on him as a student. I loved him mm. as a teenager. Me and my buddies all read Zarathustra together. And she's like, what do you like? Why do you? And I was like, he strikes me as super important for today. And she was asking me about why. And I was explaining, well, because he, you know, he's an enemy of easy thought. He's a sworn enemy of packed answers to complex questions. He's, mm. he's an acolyte of perspectivism. He believes we need to carefully consider matters from multiple angles. He values intellectual curiosity and existential courage. He's funny as hell. He's irreverent. He's pretty much the opposite of what we value in America anyway, in terms of cancel culture and polarized dialogue and discourse and self-censorship or other censorship and all kinds of terrible stuff going on culturally in, in the United States along those lines. So she's like, hey, you know, we started conceiving of this book together. And now, like I said, I'm 300 pages into it. Yeah, if that's just the second chapter. <laughs> yeah, the second, the first chapter was wokeism, although my editor said she doesn't want to start with that. But no. the second chapter is on democracy. And I'm just finding that, you know, mm -hmm. I was thinking about calling the book uh, Nietzsche's most cancelable quotes or something, because mm -hmm. everything he says, like yells out, cancel, cancel, cancel. He says, slavery has always been part and parcel of culture. And you read that and like, oh my God, okay, we can't read this guy anymore. And then you, you start working out what he means and you see there's something extraordinarily astute going on there. Uh, yeah. And same with democracy. How can you be an enemy of democracy, especially the time when democracy is under threat? And we assume that the alternative is, you know, whatever, fascism or, mm -hmm. or totalitarianism. So this is why I value the slowness. And Nietzsche himself says, he says, lento, lento, lento. What does that mean, Matthew? <laughs> <laughs> slow, slow, slow. And mm -hmm. uh, that's why I think he's so important. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Listening to you say that, uh, that word wokeism, it yeah. just feels like an, it's a sort of a basement of anything meaningful in the sense that the term has so much cultural baggage and trigger value, right? That it, it just seems beneath Nietzsche in many ways. <laughs> oh, right. Right. You know what I mean? It's like why would we why yeah. would we even tar Nietzsche's thought with the kind of superficial, self-serving meaninglessness of this this token for what is incredibly rich, complicated and in many ways self-destructive and confused thinking and unreasoning, which marks what is in many ways a kind of thrust of American anti-intellectualism. I do want to look at links between Nietzsche and Buddhism, but also non-philosophy, because it seems to me that in many ways Nietzsche is a, is a practitioner of that kind of very, very careful positioning in relationship oh. to thought and complex ideas, right? 
let me just interject there in case, so I don't yeah, forget it. I've been reading through all of Nietzsche and I've read everything except the couple things he wrote on Wagner. How many times I had to stop reading, I'm like, wait a minute, this is Laruel. Mm. And then it dawned on me, Laruel's first book was on Nietzsche. Ah. So there is a very, very, very close relationship there. Mm. Yeah. Great. Another thing about the mm-hmm. question about mindfulness, <laughs> mindfulness about uh, wokeness, Nietzsche says he's a subterranean thinker. He bores minds and undermines. He goes into dark places where it's musty and dirty and no one else wants to go. And he's like asking his readers to develop eyes for such depth work. So you're right that uh, he would be very dismissive of something like wokeness, except that one thing I'm doing in the book so that it won't be dated really quickly, like who knows how long Mm. cancel culture or this issue with pronouns or LGBTQ issues wokeness will be part of the, you know, circulating in our our national conversations. I'm always very careful to find the more abiding subject at hand. So for example, with wokeness, the more abiding subject is ideology. Really, wokeness is just another ideology. Or when I do, if you do pronouns, really, the, the big issue is identity and so forth. Yeah, so he might not have anything to say about anything like wokeness per se, although he would see that what was going on in his time was also the way he summarizes is public opinions, private laziness. Mm. It's kind of just going along with a certain form of thought because it's expedient or because you'll be cast as reactionary or something if you don't. And he just calls this a kind of laziness. So he might not see wokeness as being all that different from what he saw as uh, the level of culture in his own time. I don't know. I mean, that's an interesting question. Mm-mm. I don't think anything's below him. I mean, he'll take on anything. He says, I, I'm a unterirdische Arbeiter, like I, I work underground, so mm. yeah, mm-hmm. in the dark. That comment from me, obviously, it comes from a specific place, which is just the fact that because it's such an oversensitive topic in itself, right, wokeism, it triggers a kind of onslaught of unthinking reactionary <laughs> behavior, right? Yeah. You and I are both educators, and we both know it's sad. But we have to be cautious not to try and mold the world to to fit people's neuroses, right? But to at least open the way in a manner that's not excessively violent so that they will be attracted to come into that space, right, for learning and for thinking. Like what you said about your podcast generally, right? Yeah, yeah that, that you wanted to be critical, but in a way that would invite people in. Yeah. Um. Nietzsche, obviously, as you were saying, is incredibly complex. And I guess part of that is because he's not content to to sit on his laurels and, and kind of assert a position and, and act or lead from there, right? He's always seeking an honest relationship with whatever material he's thinking about. One thing he, or one thing that's a central concept in his philosophy more, more broadly, and this is something you pick up on, is this idea of self-overcoming. And that seems like a good point for us to sort of head off into, as it sounds like it might have some resonance with Buddhism to some degree, but also represent a kind of antithesis to the obsessions of identity, which mark much of the dysfunctional side of the culture wars more broadly. Because I think instead of just talking about, you know, wokeism, which is a term that defines the left usually, if we talk about culture wars and identity politics, we're picking up on something more complex, right, which navigates the terrain of both the left and the right and everything else in between. So how about that? 
two things there. I know that wokeism is considered an element of so-called progressive thought or leftist thought. I don't think that's really the case. In fact, when I was researching this chapter on wokeness, I found an incredible amount of podcasts, interviews, articles written from the far left criticizing wokeness in ways that might be similar on the conservative and right. And that was very curious to me and was kind of encapsulated in this conversation between these two young women. I would say they were in their mid to late 30s, and it was a a socialist podcast. And they were asking that exact question, like, why do people consider this leftist? Because it's not leftist in the least. It's a kind of reactionary uh, form of thought. And they came up with the conclusion that rather than calling it leftist, we should call it just an element of the youth of America today, like it's coming out of youth culture. And it's exerting an influence on the world of academia, where, you know, you know, my daughter just graduated from college. And I always say when I visit her, like, my God, you live in like a city of like young people, you know, they're like 15,000 young people living here. So they exert an influence on academia, which is probably one of the centers of what we call woke ideology. Um, anyway, we'll just leave that there. But I argue in this chapter that it's not leftist at all. The argument can be made that uh, whether it's like left liberal into socialism, communism, anarchism, which is what the left is. Let's just put it this way in a nutshell. They value many things that wokeism does not represent. Mm. In fact, represents the opposite of. The other question about self-overcoming, that is Nietzsche's, one of Nietzsche's primary goals is self-overcoming, but we should have two kind of caveats there. And that is the first one might be, this is a quote. He, he says, I despise improvers of mankind. He kind of is a despiser of the people who think they know how to help us do our self-overcoming. So all of a sudden, your self-overcoming is without any real, you know, robust aid, like from what we might call a guru type. Mm. So that's the first caveat. The second one would be, so he has this idea of becoming what you are, but he says to become what one is, one must not have the faintest notion what one is. Like in America, we think we already know what it is we want to become or need to become or should become. You know, we're told that through whatever our ideological systems, our religion, you know, the yoga instructor. And we we set forth to then accomplish that through, you know, step one, step two, step three. And Nietzsche's arguing that self-overcoming cannot already be directed towards a specific goal. Like a lot of things in Nietzsche, he says he's a miner in the darkness, in the, in, in the musty earth, and we have to become that as well. Taking those two caveats to heart, what does he really mean by self-overcoming? One thing it means is it's very individual. You know what it means. What it means for you cannot be what it means for me because it's different sets of values and, and dispositions and degrees of, of health and capacity. But it's something you need to continually do because that's what it is to be alive. Mm-hmm is to never rest, like you said, Nietzsche himself didn't rest on his laurels, is to never rest content because you know, life is dynamic. It moves forwards, it moves backward. You know, stagnation is, is a kind of backwards moving that appears to be status quo. So yeah, self-overcoming is a major goal of Nietzsche. And part of what comes along with that goal is how do we create the cultures, culture writ large, but also the, the microcultures, like friendship groups, schools, universities, whatever it is, workplaces that foster this kind of self-overcoming, continual 
self-overcoming development of one's abilities, capacities, and so forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just putting it in the progressive form as well means that it is a practice, right? You know, it's not something that you do and you complete and then it's done. Yes. It's an ongoing commitment to be anti-prescriptive, both in in how you understand your own process of self-overcoming and how you communicate that to others. So that's that's certainly an off point for the culture. Authenticity is another word that comes up in Nietzsche's work. And it's interesting that one way of looking at the the kind of campus culture uh, in the UK and in America is being rooted in dysfunction or a kind of uh, psychological uh, dis-ease and a reaction to that. And I, I can't help but think that one of the reasons all of this has come out of America is that something like authenticity or having your true identity is being packaged as yet another American commodity. So that, you know, the idea that's being sold to a lot of uh, young people, unfortunately, is that, you know, they, they, they just have to discover their true self, and then that becomes a kind of commodity which then they own, and they will be fulfilled in some some way. I don't know what you think about that. I was just looking for a quote. I have it to that point. Uh, Nietzsche says somewhere something to the effect of, do not find or think that you can find some specific element of your identity and latch on to that. Nietzsche is very against this idea of a firm identity. And there's a lot to be said about that. Mm -hmm. He himself was very complex. I mean, he was kind of a a strange person in many ways, like, uh, you know, even just say gender-wise, like, on the one hand, he had this military bearing. He was in the military and, you know, he was trained as a soldier. And and when people saw him from a distance, it was like, oh my God, is that the, the philosopher Nietzsche? He looks like a soldier with his big mustache and his broad shoulders. On the other hand, you have someone like Andreas Salome, who of course was an early psychoanalyst, friend of Freud's and Rilke's, who said that she never in her life had met a more feminine person than Nietzsche, including among her women friends. So he, he, he was this complex figure. He seems to have been maybe asexual. No one really knows. Like, it's hard to know you know, what his sexuality was, whether it was even important to him. He didn't have relationships with men or women, as far as, as, far as we know. I mean, there's no evidence of that in the letters or in the text, for sure. He thought that uh, identity was very open and fluid and changing all the time. Uh, he's a profound anti-foundationalist. He thinks there are many selves in us who are combating for dominance and to ever imagine that you fixed on one is a profound error. So yeah, he has an awful lot to say. In fact, I'm really looking forward to finishing the chapter on democracy because the next one would be about identity because the democracy question really comes down to how to create a culture or world in which we can create the kind of beings, kind of subjects, you know, we want, you know, he explains why it is he wants the kind of subject he does. But that leads right into the question of subjectivity and identity. Yeah. Yeah. He has an awful lot to say about that, for sure, to us. An awful lot to say to us about that. Yeah. One thing you do in your book is you explore this idea, you develop this idea of the ideal reader. In many ways, uh, Nietzsche is an example, a dysfunctional one, imperfect one, but is one nonetheless of the ideal thinker. You've already mentioned this commitment to various positions 
which are in a sense anti-positional, right? Whilst appreciating that positions move and change. Well put. In a sense, he embodies a couple of qualities that we do hear some folks talking about today, epistemic curiosity and epistemic humility. Let's look at him for a moment then as, a, as an example of the ideal thinker. What would be some of the, the characteristics that he might encourage us to, to pick up, apart from those two I've just mentioned? Yeah, I love those terms, epistemic curiosity, epistemic humility. That captures him very, very well. Yeah, he says, he says, when I imagine a perfect reader, they always turn out to be a monster of courage and curiosity. Mm. And then he kind of glosses what they mean. They're supple, they're cunning, they're cautious, they're born adventurers and discoverers. And I think he would say the same about, about a thinker. He, he says, thinking must be dangerous. It must be courageous. You have to follow it where it's going. This is why he calls himself an immoralist. It's kind of He's saying that somewhat ironically because he says he's going to say I'm an immoralist because I have bored through the the hard shell of contemporary morality and I'm discovering what the emptiness that's inside of there. That's he's only an immoral an immoralist in relationship to the moral I, ideals of the culture. So he thinks a thinker should be prepared to do that. And like you say, you know, I think in Perfect Buddha podcast and you, of course, as a podcaster, embody these Nietzschean qualities of, of thinking, which is just to look at things from various perspectives, never rest comfortably with a, a conclusion, but to somehow avoid kind of vapid postmodern relativism, not to never take a stance. I get the impression from you that you have very definite opinions and take very firm stances in the world, but to do so in a kind of fluid, open, prepared to budge manners, different from how it sounds. Um, yeah. To your question, when I started to write this book, I thought, oh my God, like I kept coming across all these passages. I'm like, how am I going to ever explain this to people, especially the people in my midst? You know, I'm in, I'm still in academia. I still teach. I'm an adjunct and I'm still in that world somewhat. You know, he's saying things that, uh, you know, you can never utter at, in a meeting full of other academics or <laughs> even the students. And then I realized that the key is that he's not trying to come to some truth about things. He's against this idea of truth. He thinks falsities are just as important and just as powerful. Like what fuels our world, what has fashioned our world are demonstrably false ideas about other worlds, transcendence, and so forth, mm. if not demonstrably false, and at least unprovable. It occurred to me that if you approach Nietzsche as a thinker in the way that, say, a guru is a thinker, someone who has found his or her way to the truth of the matter, well, that's not going to work. What will work is to realize that Nietzsche, as a thinker, is showing, and a writer, showing us how to think. That's what he's doing. He's showing us how to think through a matter and an issue. And it's, it, it takes courage, it takes curiosity, it takes cunning, and it's very adventurous, and it's full of discoveries, and it will ruin you. And he will say that as well. Like, his life is a testament to the fact that, like, he literally became a recluse, a nomad and a stranger and a heretic, but that will happen to you figuratively as well, mm -hmm. I would argue. Yeah, again, there's so much in there, but one tie into the question I posed before, which I, I, do, I don't want to lose, is this, um, this idea of intellectual conscientiousness. 
which I also like. I think if we, we tie that together with um, epistemic curiosity and humility, we've got a kind of triad for, for thinking about the ideal thinker in many ways, right? What was the term? Intellectual conscientiousness. Oh, absolutely, yes. Because yeah. these, again, are, are concepts or terms that we don't really talk about anymore. I mean, if you look at public discourse, <laughs> these things are not coming up as central topics of discussion. I don't know if you're going to touch on this at all in your book. And again, if you're, you're seeking to not close it within this very narrow historic period, you may not want to. But it feels to me that one of the most negative consequences of the American culture wars and the rise of identity politics on the left more broadly, which is something I complained about 15 years ago already, is that it, it uh, pushes out so many other important issues and topics that we really could do with our intellectual class actually thinking about more seriously. But the cultivation, both individually and collectively, of intellectual conscientiousness over you know, ideological commitment or allegiance or acceptance of a certain form of status quo of a tribal group is, is a great loss of our kind of collective vitality. Um, I wonder what you think about, about that. I mean, obviously, insight, as a your insight, INCITE project is is in a sense a kind of project of collectively cultivating intellectual conscientiousness, right? Are you using that word like in a consciously Nietzschean uh, sense, yeah. or are you just <laughs> yeah? Because that's a very important concept in Nietzsche, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I, I'm saying too much. Let me give you a chance. No, to respond I think to it's that. great. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm actually. Looking for, for a quote on that, if you don't mind, I think it's so important. I think that, as usual, ask a question goes right to the heart of the matter, including the heart of, as you so astutely pointed out, insight seminars. And that is the desire to cultivate what Nietzsche calls intellectual conscience, or you're calling conscientiousness. Would it be too much to read a little bit of the quote of what he means? Can you locate it? My notes are too jumbled, I'm afraid. I do I do have it here. You, you just tell me to sh shut up if I'm talking <laughs> for too long. At it, some point he says, again, I think this is worth slowing down here because I think this is at the heart of Imperfect Buddha podcast. It's the heart of Insight Seminars. It's certainly at the heart of my own like work as a teacher and a writer. And it's at the heart of Nietzsche. And he has this section he calls it Intellectual Conscience. I'll say another thing I really enjoy about this book is I'm retranslating like everything I'm reading, which is so much fun. Hmm. The translations out there are all, all really good and everything, but there's a liveliness and dynamism to Nietzsche's language that I'm, I'm really making an effort to bring out. So I'm really enjoying this aspect of the book as well. So he says, intellectual conscience, I have the same experience over and over again and resist it anew each time. I do not want to believe it even if I can grasp it, grasp at it with my hands, the vast majority of people lack an intellectual conscience. Yes, it has often seemed to me as if someone with such a conscience would be as lonely in the most densely populated cities as in the desert. Everyone looks at you with strange eyes and works their weighing scales as before, calling this good and that evil. Nobody blushes with shame when you let it be known that their weights are underweight nor do they respond with outrage towards you. Perhaps they laugh at your doubts. What I want to say is this, the vast majority of people do not consider it contemptible to believe this or that and to live accordingly without first becoming aware of the final and most certain reasons for and against 
and without even troubling themselves about such reasons afterwards. Even the most gifted men and the noblest women belong to this vast majority. But what are good heartedness, refinement, and genius to me when the person possessing these virtues tolerates lax feelings and belief and judgment, and when the demand for certainty is not his or her inmost longing and deepest necessity as that which separates the higher humans from the lower. I discovered in certain pious people a hatred of reason, and that was fine with me. At least this hatred betrayed their bad intellectual conscience, you know, and made it visible. Um, And then he goes on to say, but to stand in the midst of this rerum concordia discourse, this discordant harmony of things, and the whole wonderful uncertainty and ambiguity of existence without questioning, puts in print in in italics without trembling with the longing and rapture of questioning without at least hating the person who questions without even taking a dim delight in him that is what i feel to be contemptible and it is this feeling that i first look for in someone some sort of foolishness keeps convincing me that every person must have this feeling simply as a human being this is my type of injustice he doesn't find intellectual conscience wherever he looks, even among the intelligent people, the leaders of the world, the leaders of the academy, the professors, the ones who are supposed to know, he finds that they too quickly lapse into a belief and a conclusion, and that's the end of the matter. Mm-hmm. That's what separates him from humanity and what he finds so despicable and discouraging. So this is what we want to develop is an intellectual conscience, which is doing this kind of examination that he's asking of it yeah 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 of a matter this is surprisingly accessible bit of prose you just shared <laughs> i think so yeah 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 well it also struck me as i was listening that we're back to perhaps a tie-in to the goods of buddhism here which is that none of that's possible unless you are really engaged in this process of self-overcoming all right yeah the goods of of no self if we we use contemporary terms, you know, the, the goods of being able to no longer identify with the product of your own hard work is, in a sense, the, the product of that kind of intellectual conscientiousness. But how do you teach that, Glenn? <laughs> Apart from what, what we're doing here and the three things you, you, you mentioned again, we're not cultivating this kind of conscience and conscientiousness where we can even stick them together with their different meanings. We're not really cultivating this in our educational institutions anymore, mm. right? And this was That's right. this was a problem that existed well before what we might call the takeover of academia by certain um, ideological extremes. I mean, this has been going on since the 1950s in America and Britain and in Italy too, this, this degradation of the value of education and the shifting of it towards the production of you know productive useful citizens that will, will keep the, the the machine going on so to speak right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but uh yeah as you and i both know i mean this this sort of self-overcoming is profound and uncomfortable and painful as well as nietzsche knew better than you or i and it seems to me that we haven't quite figured out just yet enough of the the ways that we might introduce balance to this kind of pursuit as well Right, and that's something else that um, Nietzsche was interested in. He was interested in embracing life and that that kind of balance between the 
Dionysian and Apollonian instincts. Perhaps that's something he failed at in his own life because, he, you know, he ended up so badly in the end. But uh, sorry, I'm just rambling on a bit myself now with no, various thoughts. You, you just raised like uh, several. Yeah, apologies. <laughs> but the first one, though, is very, very important in relation with this idea of intellectual consciousness. You asked, like, how do we cultivate that? How do we create this value in the world? And, and yes, Nietzsche's only public talks were on education because he felt that in his own day, education has shifted over for, from something that cultivated the whole individual. It was a very Humboldtian idea. Nietzsche went to Schul Fort. It was a very fancy, humanistic, um, like what, what do you call it in English? I think it's kind of like a high school, gymnasium, like this German style of school. Then he became a professor at a very young age, age 24. And already at that time, you know, Bismarck comes to power. And one of the first things Bismarck does is he starts changing the educational system. And Nietzsche says he changed it in the service of the economy, which he thought was absolutely horrible and was just creating people to feed into the machines of the economy. So Nietzsche actually is very, very concerned about this. I think, I mean, you ask a super important question is, other than just like you and me sitting here talking about this, like how do you actually spread something like how do you teach intellectual conscious uh, consciousness or create subjects who are practitioners of intellectual consciousness assuming it to be an important value like so I, earlier i said like you can talk about culture writ large but more importantly i think we need to talk about cultures the university the classroom is a culture and that is where something like this has to happen in the, these cultural spaces where human beings are interacting. And you always talk about practice. And yeah, there are lots of practices going on at university classroom. And that's one place. There, there have to be spaces where that's, where that's practiced. You know, it's not just going to float freely in the air. Yeah, that's part of why, you know, I created Insight Seminars. I like just to start having conversations, dialogues. I wasn't thinking of Nietzsche's idea of intellectual conscience at the time, but it turns out that's exactly what it was I was interested in, in facilitating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another, another thing I like about uh, Nietzsche is the fact that he, he does something which is not so common, which is he, he sees beyond the obfuscating fixation on the present. He doesn't transcend it in a, in a kind of disembodied way, right? I mean, obviously, he's been he's been cast as a visionary at various points. One reason for mentioning that again is just the fact that we seem to be living in the consequences of yet again the consequences of his insight, which was the death of God will bring about great upheaval and and dysfunction and shift towards nihilism in the West. One thing that's often forgotten about that is that he he's not a mystic in the sense of a disembodied mind looking towards the future for some kind of mystical outcome or end or vision of the future it's like he's got this capacity to see where where society is going at the time he was alive because his vision or his perception is so deeply rooted in his own flesh and his own suffering and i think yeah. in that sense he he is the kind of antithesis of these disembodied visionaries and their ideological projections and fantasies and ideals, right? And I oh, kind of yeah. think, just to tie that into the issues of our time, is that it, it seems clear to me that a lot of the identity politics is not just an attempt to, to fill the void of the collapse of the left in terms of its political victories, you know, the, the death of social democracy in America 
and the kind of dominance of neoliberalism, but it's also yet another manifestation of this incapacity for society at large to actually provide some means to the younger generation to actually make sense of the world they live in without God. And so it's inevitable that people start reproducing the features of a religion, whether it be the visionary, mm-hmm. proselytizing academics or intellectuals, and then, you know, the need for rituals and language, special language, and the moralistic values that accompany religion. I want to say two things, and I'll try and be clear, because I know I'm, I'm kind of wandering off on thoughts here. But the first one is, uh, I wonder what your thoughts are on that, that, that kind of embodiedness which Nietzsche represented all the while suffering so much that the temptation to, to shift into disembodied thought must have been there at some point. Yeah. And secondly, um, what you think about the consequences, right, of the death of God and its relationship to this, this ongoing search for meaning and the kind of grasping onto identity politics as a kind of reaction against the loss of a unifying stable ground. Yeah, excellent. Like, I probably shouldn't be doing this, but I'm looking, I'm looking for a quote. I won't do it. I won't look for any quotes. <laughs> because uh, Nietzsche is very, very clear that he thinks philosophy is a profoundly embodied practice. In fact, he even says in some places, no one knows if he's saying it ironically or not, but he's like, really, it all comes down to diet and the air, whether it agrees with you or not, whether you get the right kind of exercise, like how you spend in your time. Like, he's like, really that's what we're getting with philosophers we're getting their embodied experience they disembody it as abstract ideas you know even all the way to plato which literally disembodied ideas that that he seems to be contemplating but it's always an embodied practice for nietzsche nietzsche as you know I, probably most people know is like racked by pain he had days on end where he couldn't get out of bed he had such migraines that he was just throwing up constantly not sleeping some people suggested that maybe while he wrote the way he did, you know, like after his first couple of books are not like long sustained arguments. So they're what they call aphorisms, but not really aphorisms, just like big chunky paragraphs. Because uh, he, again, it's a good example of how it reflected his bodily mm-hmm. condition. The way Nietzsche writes reflects his bodily condition. He thinks it's all deeply embodied and he's a great enemy of disembodiment and transcendence. In fact, or no, Laura well says God, God is always lying in wait, uh, which is an, a great image. Uh, and Nietzsche will agree with that. The lying in wait and the God is always claims about some other world. This is what Nietzsche despises is the tendency to think about life in terms of other worlds. And what he would say would be that you can even find this tendency in supposedly, you know, imminental forms of practice, like say mindfulness. Or, 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 you know, or wokeness, like wokeness is supposed to be an imminental ideology about this world. But he, he would easily identify the shadow of God in there. That's just what he says. He says, yes, God is dead and we have killed him, but the shadow of God will be projected on to our caves for millennia. And this comes to the question, the interesting that you said this, like, you're right. Like there's a weird, interesting temporality in Nietzsche. He's very future oriented, but not in an abstract sense. He's future oriented because of the embodiedness. What I mean is he thinks that the world we're living in with its morality, its values of equality and equal rights for all and, and all that, he thinks come out of Christian culture the Christian ideas, and he remember, he's a great reader of the Renaissance and of ancient Greece. So he's aware of 
other cultures without Christianity. He, he believes Renaissance was an anti-Christian period. Forget that. Let's just say ancient Greece. He's aware of what's possible in a culture, in subject formations, in political organizations, and so forth, minus the dominance or the influence of Christian values. So he, he has a keen eye for when Christian values are showing up, and he sees them showing up everywhere. He would say woke, wokeness is just another version of Christianity. He would be able to articulate how. So he thinks this stuff takes a long, 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 long time to develop and a long, long time to play out. So he's always talking about the future. He's like, I have no solutions for the present. It wouldn't matter anyway, because this shit is like too deep and too powerful that we can't turn it back. He talks about the coming of nihilism as a rushing torrent. How do you turn back a rushing torrent coming down a mountain, a 3,000 foot, 6,000 foot mountain? You can't do it. So he's, he claims to be trying to create some materials for a future and He's assuming human beings to to pick up on his materials and fashion something out of it. But yeah, it's very, very future oriented. Like he'll even say things about democracy. Like, yeah, democracy really, you know, the beautiful thing about it is it wants to create equal opportunities for people. And 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 that's a great thing. He says, but of course, I'm talking about the democracy yet to come. We find this a lot in Nietzsche that's always like yet to come. So so that that's that part. The death of God stuff, what was your specific question about that? Um, uh, remembering all of that stretched out question is difficult, but I can pivot it towards a point that, I, that relates to it and picks up on what you've just said. You mention in your text uh, the fact that uh, Nietzsche embraced Greek culture for a variety of reasons, uh, but one of them was this idea of embracing life which is, of course, an antidote to much of the kind of retreat into ideology as idealism or, or you know, the, the cure-all for these problems that we have. Embracing life also seems to be antithetical to the idea of renunciation. And one thing that I think you and I share is, is a real appreciation for this Dionysian world, but also having some kind of balance between that and the Apollonian instincts. How successful do you think Nietzsche was in actually managing that himself, in, in, despite all of his problems with his health and society at large, do you think in some small way he was able to embrace life and operate within those two spheres inspired by Greek culture? That's a very interesting question. You get this in the letters, especially, like he was often concerned with being made fun of. Hmm. There are even modern day scholars who kind of make fun of Nietzsche along the very lines you're speaking, because they're like, okay, yeah, this like sickly, perhaps effeminate man had no friends. He lived alone. He like lived in shitty little rooms, you know, that he rented. And then he's talking about this Ubermensch. What a ridiculous hypocrisy. What a farce. What It's laughable. There are lots of ways of looking at Nietzsche's life as precisely accomplishing just what you said. I mean, Let's go back a little bit. What did he find so important? Like he loved the Greeks because he thought, especially the Greeks of a certain period, like the Homeric period, of course, when it comes to Socrates, he's, he's not so fond of the Greeks anymore. And uh, maybe I'll say why. Like, so in the early period, he's looking at the tragedies in particular. He believes that the Greeks were able to embrace life. You and I are probably both allergic to what I'm about to, the statement I'm about to use, but he uses it. So I'll say it. they were able to embrace life as it is. 
and that's his the basic idea behind his concept of amor fati. You know, the love of fate is like there's a certain stoic element, like accepting what can't be changed and just embracing life. And he, Nietzsche will say, if you enjoy any aspect of your life, you must love your son and you know your wife and there are aspects of your life you must find wonder wonderful. Well, they're not possible without the horrid parts either for your life. They might be possible for another person without whatever it is you suffer. And he thought the Greeks recognized this so that they were able to balance this Apollonian, you know, rationality, balance, the aesthetic control, self-control, that sort of thing, along with the Dionysian, which is the wild, undercurrent, irrational passions, the drives of the body. He thought the Greeks represented a version of a whole, a whole. You used the term earlier, holistic. You'd like to think holistically. He thought that about these Greeks. And that's why he loved Goethe as well, the German writer Goethe. He thought Goethe also embodied this kind of wholeness. And that's what Nietzsche is interested in. He's interested in embracing life as it is, all of it together, because there is no separating it all out. That's the fantasy. That's why we create other worlds, because we want to have this imaginary place where we can separate out the bad parts. So whether he he himself embodied that, you know, I would make the case that he did, uh, because he was, was obviously very in touch with deep, dark, instinctual drives, and he was able to do something with them in terms of aesthetics and creativity with his writing and with his thinking. It doesn't let one get the better of the other. That's why he gets disappointed in Socrates. He thinks Socrates starts introducing an over-rationality. You can find any solution through reasoning powers. And Nietzsche doesn't like that precisely because it tries to usurp the bodily energies and the bodily drives. Mm. This is me, Matthew O'Connell, and sponsor of the Imperfect Buddha podcast. That's right, it's my podcast and I'm sponsoring it. Hmm, is that even possible? Well, who cares? I'm doing it. And this is really a reminder that I coach, mentor, and teach folks the weird and wonderful ways of the practicing life. Drawing on person-centered counseling, life coaching, critical dialogue, and years of teaching and group facilitation, I coach and mentor folks looking for an alternative to the current market of self-help, spirituality, and religion. Much of what I have specialized in touches on themes that have been explored in the podcast. So for those new to this podcast and this kind of approach to coaching, let me fill you in a little bit. I use post-traditional tools and tools taken from the world of non-philosophy and non-Buddhism and my own experimentations with both. Most of the clients that come to me through this podcast are current or ex-Buddhists, ex-spiritual types, and those cautiously approaching practice with a view to keep their intelligence and critical faculties intact. If you are an intellectual hiding your desire for something along the lines of a spiritual practice, yes, the scary quotes are out there, don't be shy, come on out of the closet and be proud. We'll find a way to make it work that you don't need to be ashamed of. Seriously, I mean it. I work with traditional coaching and counselling methods too, as well as meditation, 
And for the more adventurous folks, I can offer shamanic tools. Well, they're really neo-shamanic tools and concepts and something akin to a practice rooted in a reconfiguration of our relationship with the natural world, minus the romanticism. I offer a sliding scale, so whatever your economic status, if you're genuinely interested in upping your game, money should not be an obstacle. Wherever you find yourself in your life right now, if you wish to refine your relationship with practice and take a leap into a deeper relationship with the practicing life, do get in touch. The first session is non-committal and won't cost you a dime, a euro, a cent or a penny. We'll decide together whether it's going to be a potentially good working relationship and if so, you can commit to a cycle of practice sessions. I currently do most of those online through Skype or Zoom, although if you happen to be in Italy or somewhere near the border, you might even come down for a session in person. You'll find all you need in a contact form at imperfectbuddha.com or you can get in touch through imperfectbuddha at outlook.com. Although I think we could do something here, which is reimagine this phrase, life as it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't let that go. <laughs> I know. Yeah. You know why? Because after critique, do something. Right. One of the tricks I use, tricks, one of the, one of the compulsions I have would be a better way of defining it, is that I tend to relate to these philosophers and the, the reading of them as, as a phenomenological practice as well. And by that, I mean, if I take a phrase like uh, embrace life as it is, it, it, it has an impact, right? Just to utter that phrase, it has an impact conceptually. It has an impact if you, if you allow the words to resonate in you. It has, a, has an impact on your body. It has an impact on the relationship you're having. If it's in speech, if you're actually communicating with someone and you're saying that. And it has an impact on you, uh, on us, I should say, uh, when teachers say that as a kind of slogan and a quick fix that will somehow resolve something when clearly it doesn't. But in terms of amore fati, I mean, um, you know, it's love of fate, isn't it? That's more or less what it translates yeah. as. And fate is not life as it is. It's almost like a, an acceptance of the thrust of, or the momentum of your existence and the context in w which you find yourself. So when I think of something like embrace life as it is, it's actually almost like a command to get out of transcendent thought or get out of wishful thinking or idealization of anything and actually redevelop physical intimacy or physical commitment to the reality of the circumstances within which you're located. So I would take it as a kind of a recall to imminence, if that, that makes sense. As a starting place. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So it's a reset, resetting. Yes, yes. I yeah. like that very much. And I think that's exactly what's going on here. Because if, if anything, Nietzsche is all about transforming the world and transforming life. So it can't be a kind of life as it is, and that's and now so just work on yourself so that you can deal with that. No, it's not that sort of thing at all. No. Well, that's a form of uh, what we might call shallow refuge. Yes. Right? Um, Critchley picked up on this, and a lot of people think it's Simon Critchley's statement, but that's what Nietzsche called passive nihilism. Mm. Critchley writes, uh, passive nihilism is this going into oneself, 
here's what he writes. It's very interesting. I, I just found a quote. He says, in the face of the increasing brutality of reality, the passive nihilist tries to achieve a mystical stillness, calm contemplation, European Buddhism. He puts that in quotes, critically, because it's, it's a Nietzschean concept. In a world that is all too rapidly blowing itself to pieces, the passive nihilist closes his eyes and makes himself into an island. And that, that's also Nietzsche's criticism of what he sees is up with Buddhism. Maybe we can turn to that in a second. But mm -hmm. to finish this point, there's a very interesting quote, like this idea of life as it is. Here's one of these statements by Nietzsche that's like, oh, my God, how am I going to like explain this to you know the, the people around me? So Nietzsche says... Those of us who have another opinion than the world seems to have of itself, he says, we are of the opinion that harshness, violence, enslavement, danger on the street and in the heart, seclusion, stoicism, the art of the tempter of every kind of devilry, that everything evil, frightful, tyrannical, predatory, and snake-like about humans serves to heighten the species human being as much as does its opposite. This is what he means by life as it is. <laughs> he also means that if we look at our culture, look at goes in the creation of your cell phone. Look at go what goes in the creation of the technology you and I are using right here. Nothing short than slavery goes into the creation of these technologies, literal, actual slavery. So Nietzsche is saying, like, let's don't be too precious Let's look at what, what has created our world and actually even created the conditions for the so-called higher types. That's looking at life as it is. And that's why it takes courage, because we don't want to admit this stuff about ourselves. We want to get rid of a statement like that. Mm. Mm -mm. It makes me think of um, interdependence as well. And, oh, and how that right gets Absolutely. used as a highly selective absolutely <laughs> trope for saying you know i'm connect i'm going to connect to everything but just the good stuff <laughs> I, and i think you and i talked about this in another yeah. podcast like for the buddha interdependence pratija samapada was actually like uh, horrifying because it mm. because it suggested a lack of freedom it suggested being caught up in this maelstrom what nietzsche calls a monster of energy without beginning or end like nietzsche talks about he says the world is a firm iron magnitude of force that does not grow bigger, does not grow smaller, that does not expend itself, but only continually transforms itself. And he goes on and on and on like that. And it's like, okay, this is interdependent origination, and this is terrifying in, in many ways. So what is it to celebrate? Again, Buddhists themselves have, have taken transcendent, I mean, um, interdependent origination and otherworldized it extracted the negative aspects of it and made it into this kind of beautiful, you know, ecological thing. Oh, yeah. It would be interesting, actually, to have a kind of updated uh, discourse analysis of, of current Buddhist discourse to see what's, what's been excluded since you or I paid heavy attention to the kind of language being used by prominent Buddhist teachers. But I think samsara has probably more or less disappeared. <laughs> yeah because right yes. if we remember yes. correctly that's pointing to what you just said <laughs> absolutely yes yeah. that's, that's actually a really interesting point matthew like there's this google program where you can like, look up a term like anarchism say i did this and like you can see its usages over over time it'd mm. be interesting to do something like that with buddhism it's exact it's very very interesting a di discourse analysis like what terms 
have gone out of favor with contemporary, say, you know, Western Buddhist teachers. Is there a talk about samsara or how is it discussed? It's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, uh, um, before we we say a bit more about Buddhism, I, I think it might be worth just mentioning a couple more words on nihilism, since it's so central to uh, the work of Nietzsche and what he looks to. Let's see if I can make this more contemporary, though. How do you think about uh, nihilism or nihilism today, and how would you relate that back to, to Nietzsche and your understanding of him? Nihilism, as I'm understanding it, in my engagement with Nietzsche. Before I started this project, my sense of nihilism, my understanding of nihilism was really, turns out to be something like just anti-foundationalism. Mm. I mean, Robert said like, oh, of course I'm a nihilist because you can't identify absolute foundations to any belief, including this one. So there you go. But Nietzsche has a much more different uh, understanding of nihilism that goes beyond anti-foundationalism. His thought is anti-foundationalist through and through. But his his talk about nihilism really is very, very interesting. He says things like nihilism is that we're weary, is a tiredness. God is dead. No one really believes in transcendental truths in the way they used to, that they really interpenetrated their lives. And I remember as a kid, like some of the Christian kids around me, like there was a Catholic school, and some of the kids went to Catholic school, and they really believed that like God could hear your thoughts and, and registered every word. And, and Nietzsche's idea is that if we look at culture, people don't believe any of this anymore. Like, yeah, sure, there's lots of religiosity in the world. But he's like, no one really believes this shit anymore. Science is has created too many complications for those old kinds of beliefs about God. So he says, in the meantime, we haven't created any new myths of meaning that are valuable. So we're floundering. In the meantime, we're becoming tired. We're becoming exhausted. And he talks about this exhaustion as being another symptom of nihilism. Nihilism is the fact that we don't believe in our meanings, our meaning making. Like we can make meaning, but who really believes in it in any significant sense? Nihilism is also, interestingly, like for Nietzsche, something like Christianity would be nihilistic because nihilism is also the repudiation of this world and this body, going back to what you were talking about earlier. So any form of thought that thinks the body is bad or that, you know, the emotions need to be overcome or that you have to put a check on this affect. He thinks that's nihilistic because it's denial of, of life, of the body. And he would certainly say that about forms of thought that postulate other worlds. They're nihilistic. They're nihilistic in the sense that they deny this world. It's, it's complex, his notion of nihilism. And he also talks about active nihilism and passive nihilism. So active nihilism is like the actual destruction of value and meaning. Passive nihilism is more this inability to create real meaning and to become wary in the meantime. That's really interesting. Thanks. Yeah. Because I think the, the kind of pop meaning of nihilism is that there is no meaning, nothing matters, and you know maybe we should be depressed or hedonist or something. This is a far more nuanced take on... It is. Oh, yes. It's almost, a, it's almost a diagnosis, right, of, of the consequences. I think that's exactly a very astute way to put it. He's making a diagnosis here of culture. Yes. Yeah. It's not the old stuff of, like, not believing in anything. He's like, 
no, if you're living in Western culture, you can't believe in anything. The very soil has become nihilistic. The nutrients have dried out. I just found a quote. It's in the book called uh, The Will to Power, which is somewhat problematic. And his sister put that together. And a lot of this stuff just came out of his notebook. So we don't really know. They're just Mm -hmm. kind of scribblings. But he says in here, nihilism, it is ambiguous, A, nihilism as a sign of increased power of the spirit as active nihilism nihilism b b nihilism is decline and recession of the power of the spirit as passive nihilism um this is something we were talking about before like you know as we create new forms of christianity through new ideologies like wokeism you can create new forms of nihilism through new articulations of meaning they can turn out just to be just more nihilism. And Nietzsche would say it's almost impossible to avoid because that's part of what our very culture is, is that which is generative of nihilism, of wariness, of hopelessness, of no longer even knowing where to try or how to try. This is why he's future-oriented. He thinks the people of today are too depleted, they're too defeated. But that's just why he's struggling to articulate the formation of a subject who can overcome nihilism. Mm-hmm. You say what that means, but through the creation of new values, in short. Good. I just notice in the passage right after where he says, nihilism is a normal condition. This is in the, the next entry of his notebook. It's a normal condition. It's not something that some people have and some people don't, like the way we talk about it, right? Mm-hmm. The culture is nihilistic. We've reached the point, we've depleted the mean. So this is this is another thing about Nietzsche. Like Nietzsche is, you know, really critical towards Christianity, but he also thinks Christianity really served humanity in that it gave it a deep meaning. And he thinks that's important. Nietzsche tried to do the same with aesthetics, with art and music. At some point when he was young, he realized that's not the way to go. Uh, but he's not like poo-pooing the possibility of meaning. He just thinks that it's very difficult to create genuine meaning out of a nihilistic culture. Yeah. And again, it's always food for thought. So it makes me think about this issue of distraction that I mentioned earlier, which seems to me so much of our contemporary political discourse is really a, an avoidance strategy, a kind of unconscious collective avoidance of perhaps being honest about this, right? Being honest about the kinds of things we need to start thinking about more seriously and constructing practices and, and theories about, uh, which is what do we do in the kind of world that uh, Nietzsche has described for us. Um, yeah, it feels like we're treading water. I don't know if you get that sensation sometimes. It feels like that apathy you, you, you spoke to yeah. is a form of treading water. And it's like, well, if we just stay here long enough and stay above water, we can kind of continue to pretend that it, ha- it hasn't happened. And there's nothing that we actually have to do. Yeah, And we'll just create all of these distractions in the meantime, which obviously started off with individualism, materialism, and commercialism, and this consumerist culture that America was so effective at creating in the last century. And it seems that the kind of obsession with identity politics is a kind of extension of that. It's a reaction to it and an extension of it. And all of that is an extension of this dysfunctional new forms of Christianity anyway. Just want to interject here, because I think it's important, like, I wish you were a bigger part of the discourse on wokeism in America, but of course, wokeism, I, I can't remember if I had written this before or after I sent you my, my manuscript, but it originates in, in America, in Black communities, and it really means stay woke, really originally meant 
be aware that you're living in a world that was created, you know, for white people uh, that is hostile to you. Don't forget this. Uh, stay woke. And, and this was the idea. Somehow it morphed into a very identity, gender identity, sexuality oriented uh, way of thinking. But that's something to remember, too, that there are the goods there for wokeness, for, you know, discourses around justice rather than just identity. Yeah, that's again another piece of, um, let's say, the intellectual conscience or conscientiousness uh, that we've been speaking about, right, which is to to be aware of the complexity and multiplicity of, of all of this. Yes, yes. Our mentioning the word wokeism is not the adoption of a rigid position for or against what it is or what it isn't, or any of these particular mm, formulations of the meaning of the term, right? Yeah. They're, they're, this is just the right material at the Great Feast of today that just happens to be, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? Producing a massive amount of food. Perhaps we're all going to get obese very, very soon on all this. And, <laughs> vomit the stuff up <laughs> but who knows that's another very interesting point that you raised maybe just for a future conversation because uh i have at insight seminars we have a group talking about issues around buddhism and recently the members of that group got very interested in the question of buddhism and technology like so you you, you alluded to that that our, our cell phones our iphones the internet like are these just new f forms of transcendence in a way new ways of mm escaping the body, seeking other worlds, like the real world is no longer really the world, the real world somehow on the internet somewhere, or, you know, in my social media feeds. That's a very interesting question. And I would say that Nietzsche actually touches on the question in terms of talking about how the human beings in his day are being swallowed up by the machines, the machinic uh, gear works. So it's an interesting question. Maybe it's one you can address. I think there, someone in the group mentioned a book on a recent book on Buddhism and technologies. I don't know if there's author that might be interesting to you or something, but it's apparently like in certain temples, like I think, I think it's in Thailand that there are these uh, like uh, robots who can the, the Anjali posture, you know, the folded hands posture and they're reciting Buddhist mantras or Buddhist prayers. And they're in sometimes even in temples. That's a question. Buddhism and technology, is it serving further nihilism? Like, Nietzsche was arguing that Buddhism is just another nihilistic form of escape or something else. Yeah. Mm. I'd like to spend a bit of time, if, you, if you've got it, uh, talking about another book of yours that we never spoke about, but I read, and I did read the whole book <laughs> and thought about it, which is a book called Non-Buddhist Mysticism. Uh, listeners should know I, I put this together for a, a conversation that we, we never got around to, and so these questions have been sat let's say, metaphorically on a shelf for a while. But I'm looking at them, and some of them are rather good, and I quite like them. And, and this will do the service of bringing the conversation a bit more fully back to this, this idea, at least, of, of Buddhism and where we are today in 2023 with it. The first one, though, is, is slightly personal in a way, I guess. All of the work of yours that I'm familiar with, Glenn, or I should say your later work, is informed by uh, provocation and imagination. And is it is itself a kind of performance. So look, is there a, is there a certain strain of anti-authoritarianism in all of your work? And if so, how are you living with that in this day and age in 2023? Yet again, a very astute insight and question. Um, yes, there is a strain of anti-authoritarianism in all my work, for sure. I, this book on non-Buddhist mysticism 
uh, has that at the heart of it, doesn't it? Yep. How am I living with it? I mean, you should observe me as a teacher in the classroom. Mm. You'll see it come to life there. Uh, maybe you can see it in some sense here. Like I'm uncomfortable doing all the talking. <laughs> I every time we're ta- like having this conversation, I'm thinking of questions to ask you. Mm. Bat right back, and I actually prefer that mode. I love talking to you, and you do it however you want. But I'm just saying that's the anti-authoritarian impulse in me. The basic idea of the anti-authoritarianism is that what is authority? Authority is only authority within an already enclosed system of thought. I've mastered this system of thought. I'm the authority, but life doesn't operate that way. There are no enclosed systems of thought. Like we said, it's a, it's a monster of energy. We talked about interdependent origination. I think all of that is provable that that's the case. So what is an authority in regards to that? Like, why would I go into the classroom, we read a text, and why would I want to dominate the conversation? I'm missing all the intelligence, all the connections, all the insights that the students can make, and I'm depriving them of one another's insights and so forth. Authoritarianism is absurd. <laughs> it's, 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 it's a kind of violence in a way. I, I, I wrote a book on education. Actually, the non-mysticism book and the education book, I actually call tracts. Mm. I tried to write them as pamphlets. They turned out to be about 100 pages. So I call them tracts, like, like condensed arguments. Um, basic idea that that is um, authoritarianism is stultifying. Now, I also believe that there's something like mastery or expertise, there's a certain amount of it that is performative in the sense that, of course, I'm an authority. The students see me that way. I've written books. I have a PhD in the subject we're talking about. So it's not really a question of whether someone has reached this status and this ability. It's more of a question of how you practice it in the world, this value Mm. or this status. And, And whether you, you know, like Nietzsche, for example, to bring back Nietzsche, Nietzsche says, the goal of what he calls a genius in his early work is to create other geniuses, to enable other geniuses. And the goal of a master like Zarathustra is to disappear into the mastery of other people. So I, I believe both of these things are true, that you want to learn a craft, you want to study with someone who's mastered that craft, but you also, in doing so, you don't want to be stultified and we don't, don't want things to be overdetermined by that person's experience. So it's, it's, a, it's a subtle, difficult practice, this practice of, of authority. Yeah, what we're really talking about, though, here, isn't it? It's not authority as abstraction, but authority as a role and as a sort of socially sanctioned role, which dehumanizes both the, the authority and those who are supposed to what, be obedient to that. I think the, the cure as well, or the value might be, something you described at the same time, which is generosity, which is a generosity of spirit of, of being in service to and the cultivation of those qualities in other people, which I think is, is one of those defining characteristics of, um, oh, what, what shall I call it? Uh, a teacher. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, a teacher in service to the craft, right? Rather than their role as teacher. It's resisting the trap of identifying with the role and assuming that that role permits you certain privileges. Beautiful. Right? And, and yeah. maybe maybe you and I would like to say what you said before that, that is what a teacher is. Yeah. The person who simply is a teacher in terms of a power dynamic or, you know, a, a social uh, permission is not a teacher at all. 
I start this book on mysticism. You talk about generosity. I, that's beautiful, I think, with this quote from Julian of Norwich in her book, uh, Revelations of Divine Love. She says, hold on to this and you will know and understand love more and more, but you will not know or learn anything else ever. I think that's the goal of this book on non-Buddhist mysticism. And it might be weird to be talking about love. I am teaching a course this coming semester called The Philosophy of Love. We'll be mm. exploring that further. Maybe that generosity that you talked about is rooted in something that we can call love. I mean, mm. love is, turns out to be complex. It's not just one type, but of a deep, deep concern, affection for mm -hmm. others or the world. It might also come with a certain kind of bizarre misanthropy, which sounds like a contradiction. Nietzsche, I think, embodied that. He absolutely, he, you know, you make the case that he had a deep, deep love for humanity. That's why he labored the way he did, but he also was abhorred by actual people. <laughs> <laughs> so this kind of love, Simone Weil, you mentioned her earlier, embodied mm. this as well. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. If you love your students, you're going to give them lots of room to explore, to investigate, to gain the confidence to become what they might idealize you as, as a master, as an authority. Mm, good. And we can also chuck in appreciation there. Yes. I often think of love as a form of appreciation or vice versa. Like appreciation for? Appreciation of, of something. To appreciate another human being is, in a sense, an investment of attention in that person. Yes. And, yeah, maybe that's getting close to what you're, you're hinting at. Great. Well, look, um, I actually think this book, um, Non-Buddhist Mysticism, could actually be understood as a, as a contemporary Mahayana text. Mm. Yeah. Uh, it seems to call for a new breed of bodhisattva, and it involves committing to the earthly plane and giving up on notions of escape, the, th the theme you and I always end up coming back to. What do you think are some of... Oh, this is a terrible question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So let me say that again. So I think this is a Mahayana text, right? Anybody listening to this that knows of the notion of the Bodhisattva, if we take that out of a transcendent ideal, we make it very, very human indeed. What do you think, um, or what do you see as some of the less obvious consequences, uh, consequences of making such a commitment that you are, in a sense, weaving through that text? Uh, wait, say that one more time, the last part. Yeah, it's a terrible question. It might not even work as well. So, but let's try. I said, what do you see as some of the less obvious consequences of making such a commitment? And by that, I mean, yeah, being a contemporary bodhisattva mm. in the way that you almost articulate in that text. Some of the less obvious consequences. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's a great question. It might also be a terrible question, but a great one as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, terrible in that other sense. That's a pretty awesome question. I think, you know, I quote a scholar in there. I, I forget her name. Uh, let me see if I find it real quickly. I do have it in front of me. I just, oh, yes. Uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce her name. Eleni Lorandau, I think. Uh, she writes, future mysticism springs from the effort to join the human with itself rather than with God. The human is emptied of its identity, going back to the earlier conversation we were having, right? Mm -hmm. The human is emptied of its identity, becomes a Christ subject who comes to fight for the world. And I think that's the, what, what was the phrase you used? The less, uh, 
what was the term you used there? The less obvious consequences of making such a commitment. The less obvious consequence is that you start living as this subject in the world. You're not preaching it. You're not starting a club about it. You don't have like a special uniform or, you know, a hat, like a MAGA hat that announces it. <laughs> the less obvious consequence is that you're introducing into this monster of energy this way of being, and you're doing it through encounters with people, with conversations, with your voice, with the choices of your words, with your actions. My students tell me that one of the most mind-blowing, kind of life-altering aspects of engagement in my classroom is through a kind of negation, is through things I don't do. I don't, just to put in a nutshell and say, I don't act in ways they expect me to act as a teacher or professor or whatever. Hmm. I don't make them jump through certain hoops and do certain things. And they're taken aback for the first time. I've heard this over and over again when, when they realize that they start talking and I'm actually listening. And they, <laughs> some of them find that terrifying. That's why it says I get to, some of them find it terrible, like in that terrifying sense. Hmm. That's a hard question you're asking. I'd have to think about it more and really reflect on it. But it's a very good question. And the, the quick answer is, you're right. This is a, a, a performative text. It's, it's Mahayana in the sense that it, it valorizes like love. Don't I even quote Shanti Devan here? Ooh, uh, I, I don't do. remember. I think I do towards the end there. The answers to these kinds of questions are always disappointing, like because they're so. <laughs> because in, in in life, what can we really do but interact with one another and to, to model things for one another? Mm. So you're modeling things this way. Like I'm a very, profoundly different teacher having thought through all this stuff than I was, you know, 25 years ago before I'd actually, that's not exactly true because my story of education goes way, way back. And I was exposed to some of this at a, when I was 16 years old, but just figuratively speaking, mm -hmm. these ideas, these ways of being have real effects in the world. Yeah. That question of what do we do is interesting, isn't it? Because if you aspire to do more, you end up leaning back into ideals yeah right on the one hand they are fantasies about what's possible on the other they could be a stretch of the imagination yes. that might bring us into new terrain yeah yeah so it could go either way that's certainly a question i think about myself you know as a teacher as a father as, as somebody who helps people in various ways i hate the idea of finding too much comfort in any of these positions right my answers may be insufficient, as you, as you said before. My answers might be disappointing, but the striving in itself and the honesty about it might give rise to something useful. Yeah, to live them with conviction, even though, you know, you know they may be changing. Mm. Um, I think that's an important part of it, because a lot of this kind of talk can lapse into what I earlier called a kind of postmodern relativism. I, I don't like that. I don't think that's valuable in any way. We need conviction, mm. but not like like hardened conviction. Mm -hmm. I, I think you embody that. I've, so, I've said that before. Mm. Okay. Okay. Now, look, throughout the the work, uh, this text, you, you are shearing close to Buddhist and mystical materials, right? Figures, texts, concepts, and conjectures. Now, this closeness needs examining. I think some people reading the book might be rather confused and say, what's going on? Yeah. You're performing, as you suggested before, you're performing something through the text. And part of that performance is a play on distance, where you're walking a kind of uh, a tightrope between great care 
and intellectual honesty and a kind of adventuring into a, a potential terrain. There is a question that follows that, but it seems a little bit irrelevant, so I'll fashion a new one. How do you manage that tightrope between, let's say, careful intellectual critique and analysis and the deeply, deeply personal drive that obviously pushes you towards putting together a work like this? When I was young, I always thought I'd want to be a writer or some sort, but I was imagining like Ernest Hemingway or something like that. Right. You write because you must, you know. I actually have come to that conclusion. I'm thinking about something, like say non-Buddhist mysticism. I'm reading around Meister Eckhart. I have a mind that's able to make connections, lots of connections with things. It's hard to talk about them because all those connections are there, but it's too much to talk about. For example, I'm talking about in a linear way. I'm reading Meister Eckhart. I came across some article about Buddhism and mysticism. I didn't find it very enlightening, but nonetheless, there was a connection. I had a conversation with someone, Carlos. We're talking about whether there could be a kind of non-Buddhist treatment of certain Buddhist materials that would have an element of mysticism. Part of the idea of the non-philosophical methodology is you're not rejecting material, you're doing something with it. So we were asking questions around that because there's something really super like enticing and inspiring and beautiful about mystical literature. It's just that at some point it lapses over into having to make a commitment to other worlds and so forth. That is difficult for people like me. Writing a book is my way of bringing into a coherent whole all of this thinking and talking and reading that must touch a nerve with me because it's like endless. Like, I don't want to say I'm obsessive about it. Ask anyone around me, like whatever it is we're talking about, I can always bring in Nietzsche because (laughs) I'm living and breathing and sleeping Nietzsche now. Someone said I'm like an intellectual method actor. Hmm. When I'm working on something, I'm completely living it. And that's why something ends up getting written is because it's critical mass has been reached where I feel like I have no choice. And it's a compulsion, but also a deep desire to spill it all out into this written form. That's what's happening Mm. with the Nietzsche stuff now too. Mm. So maybe maybe that's a bit of an answer to the question. Yeah, it is very personal. You know how many times I've heard from friends and families and even like from editors and publishers, like you can make a lot of money if you could write this kind of book. No, that's... (laughs) I couldn't write a book out of that motivation. It has yeah. to be out of this deep drive, this deep uh, kind of, uh, I don't know if obsession's the right word, but this deep kind of devotion to a, a, you know, a strain of thought. Mm. I, does that answer your question? I... That's a very thorough answer, I would okay. suggest. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. I like the fact you finished on this word devotion, uh, another unpopular word these days. Uh, but what's not to like? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I always say I really learned the value of devotion when my first daughter was born. Mm-hmm. Uh, devotion, it's, it's, it's what you said about if you, this discourse analysis of like Buddhist terms that are in and out. Uh, why not bring back some of these terms? Like this is actually, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with the notion of devotion. The notion of devotion can be put into use in all sorts of discourses, but it can also be put in, in the use of a discourse of, of of worldly engagement. So so why not? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Another of my favorite words is commitment. 
yeah. just because it's a word I refuse for so long. But it seems to be another way of thinking about what it means to be present to life or be present to the moment or whatnot. Well, they're tropes until we we unmoor them from their fixed nature exactly. in, in the hands of others, right? Which is another anti-authoritarian move. Yeah. So maybe, for example, like think about like what would it mean to have a relationship with your wife without commitment? You can start looking at it that way too. And that's something I always like to do is take these ideas that can tend to be disembodied theories and apply them to our actual lives. I do this all the time. Like When Nietzsche talks about aristocracy, let's apply that to an actual lived situation. And it turns out the university is an aristocracy. It's not a meritocracy. It's not a totalitarian. It's not a democracy. It believes that certain people are better at certain things than others, so they get the job. And no matter how talented the janitor might be uh, and knowledgeable he might be in American history, he's not going to be able to lecture. A meritocracy would allow him. It's the same as something like devotion or commitment. You know, commitment can have all, like you're right, it can have all kinds, it can be more to all sorts of forms of thought, but what would a relationship be without commitment? Mm -hmm. It's absurd to think it's possible. Yeah, yeah. Now, within your book, you, you don't talk about ex-Buddhism, right? It doesn't really come up. If I were to, to define something, I might say that I can witness a form of Zen operating somewhere in the background. Do you think that's fair uh, or would you disagree? That something like Zen operating in the background? Yeah, in the, in the text. I mean, you, you know, you're obviously bringing together non-Buddhism, mysticism. This is quite a, quite a combination. But the text itself is also performative. There are images in there. There are certain spaces which seem to resonate with almost yeah. an aesthetic of, of Zen. I've like read here and there, and people have told me that like some of this stuff I write is like more Zen than Zen kind of thing. But I, I don't really know what that means. Um, and I'd also say, I'm certainly not intentionally doing that. Maybe it'd be interesting to ask some Zen teachers what they think about that. Hmm. I mean, on the other hand, going back to this idea that how embodied we are and how we're interconnected to so much. I mean, I practiced Zen for a long time. So you could say, you know, how could it not be present in some sense? Right? I mean, yeah, n not intentionally in any way. Okay. Well, look, we're, we're running out of time. We've spoken a lot, and uh, we don't want to kill our listeners off with uh, an excess of abundance. Uh, <laughs> we are at the Great Feast. We've, we've eaten quite a bit together already. But we should leave hungry, right? Yeah, that's right. They can have the, the dessert somewhere else, yeah. or the, uh, the amaro, as they call it in Italian, right? The, uh, the digestive right. uh, nice. liquor yeah. at the end. Well, look, uh, let's go left field. So... Within Buddhism and within the Mahayana tradition in particular, there's the, the myth or the wonder or the dream or the desire for the future Buddha who's called Maitreya. Now, if we were to discuss for a moment together, what, what do we think or what could a future Buddha look like for us? Would it be an encapsulation of, of the good qualities we've been discussing today? that Nietzsche shared with us? Could we, could we somehow lend a hand to his uh, desire for a future to come about in which intellectual consciousness or conscience would be all the rage and the norm? How would, how would it look? Again, like a, a super excellent and difficult question. You get, we could have a whole symposium around this, this <laughs> Right, this we could. Um, and I think it's also a really great question also because it, 
dovetails the Buddhism and this text, non-Buddhist mysticism, with the, the stuff we've been talking about, about Nietzsche. So Nietzsche is very concerned with this idea of the Ubermensch, which you might be Buddha character. I mean, we can do that, right? Mm-hmm. It's not a savior type, but it's someone who has knowledge. So Nietzsche kind of glosses the Ubermensch in many, many different places. I've been compiling sort of adjectives, and there are things like this person has insight. We've already said it has courage, curiosity, insight, justice, magnanimity, capability of bestowing or being generous, capable of dancing and singing, someone who's active, natural, healthy, whole. You can start going down the path of naming qualities and dispositions. You and I both know that's dangerous, right, to do that, because then we start becoming these... uh, uh, improvers of mankind. And same with Buddhism. Like the problem with Buddhism is articulates a Buddha and a Bodhisattva, but it it does so in an over-determining manner. Is a Buddha really someone, a person who's come to something that's already been pre-described? Again, it's not going to be a satisfying answer here. Just saying that it's a great question. Maybe it's a good place to end on because it gets everyone thinking about what a future Buddha you know, might be like, I'm living in America in a place of, in a, at a time of extraordinary division. So that even if you could say like, someone's Buddha, yeah, you might be Buddha for one faction, but not for the others. You know what I mean? Mm, like, mm-mm. there's some notion that a Buddha is someone everyone will look to and say, like, that's a simpler being. It's hard to have that notion here in America right now. Um, you could say maybe it's someone who possesses this poverty, which goes back to what we were talking about, the refusal to identify too strongly with certain aspects of ourselves and to build an ego or self around that. The inalienable poverty is Laura Wells' idea, which might also be Nietzsche's idea. It sounds like it might also be the Buddha's idea, is that there is no abiding self. There's an emptiness that allows for many different kinds of selves to emerge or to be formed so he says only inalienable poverty, the only realization of that or acting out of that makes a person fit for the clash with hell, the clash with samsara, the clash with this world that Nietzsche thinks is terrible in so many ways. Again, the question that you ask is much better than any answer that can be given, not that we shouldn't have conversations about that. I think it'd be very uh, rich conversations and fruitful ones too. Mm. And if it's any any help as a sort of uh, guidepost for those listening, apparently Maitreya was seated in a European fashion. Hmm. Mm. Is that right? Maybe to be found right here in Europe. Like sitting on a chair? First. Or... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Okay. There it is. Interesting. Yeah. Anyway, something to mull over, chew on, and drink a beer to in honor of, uh, well, let's say the Stuart. Yeah. Old Stuart. Cheers mate. to Stuart. I'll go. Yes. You have a good one. So, to all those listening, thank you for listening. This was a long one, but uh, that's fine. I know that the, the sort of people that tune into this podcast enjoy a decent conversation. I think we managed one of those today with imperfect answers and, and imperfect questions. <laughs> Glenn, all the best with finishing up your book. And uh, all the best with you and the future of Imperfect Buddha podcast. Thank you. And folks, you heard it here. This is the first of 2023. This episode 100 will be heading off into directions anew and familiar. And uh, we hope you'll continue to tune in and listen. Bye for now.